Well, we are going to continue our series in the book of Romans, and we are going to be looking uh, at the righteousness of God's judgment today. I want to just begin with a story um, from my childhood. So our trailer uh, faced a giant front yard. Uh, it's right at the base of the Lewis and Clark Bridge in Rainier, Oregon. Our, our yard actually went up to the, the base of the bridge. I literally lived in a trailer beneath a bridge. Uh, and my stepdad's grandfather, Leonard, uh, he sold night crawlers for a living and lived in another house on the property. And he would go out and meticulously mow and rake this giant yard, which was really more of a field, and then sit with a, a chair in the yard with a shotgun across his lap waiting for moles. <laughs> I remember with perfect clarity the day that he shot into a mound that was beginning to appear in which the poor, blind, subterranean dweller surfaced from the confusion and vibration of the blast, having been somehow miraculously missed by the spread of pellets. And the old man called us kids over and he let us hold and pet the docile alien creature with its brown velvet-like fur, its seemingly eyeless face, pink nose, and strange two-thumbed oversized hands that are turned outward, allowing it to move through the dirt like a swimmer performing the breaststroke. Have you guys ever seen a mole? Have you ever touched one? They're actually quite cute. It's amazing to think the shift from the dark earth to the open air could so utterly transform its behavior. For in our hands, it had a softness both in touch and temperament that made it impossible for us as kids to grasp that beneath the ground, it was a monster, a destroyer of earth, terrorizing Leonard's precious earthworms with its poison saliva. Did you know they have poison saliva? It's awful clown hands that can grasp its victim with such precision that it can squeeze the dirt out of its insides without killing it, carrying the prey back to its larder for later consumption. And for this, Leonard could not abide, for the victims were his livelihood and the yard, their home, which is the reason he made such a mountain out of a molehill, and why when they were done <laughs> playing with our new friend, he took it behind the house and shot it in the head. I just like that story. Uh, <laughs> no, I think that there's a profound picture in this story that really, as I wrote it, I realized how accurate it is to how we as humans behave. That in the light, we can seem harmless, even good-natured. But what goes on in the dark often tells a completely different story. One of the things that scripture declares again and again is that there is a fundamental brokenness in the human heart that has distorted the very image of God. We as human beings made in the image of a God who is by nature relational. And that sin, our attempts to become our own God, that we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, as Romans declares, has created this incredible dilemma, and that is that we become quite good at believing a lie about ourselves, which is that we actually are 
as gentle as the mole in the light when in actuality we can wreak devastation in our lives and in others' lives by the things that we keep hidden. One of the things that scripture declares again and again is that there will be a great reckoning, that there will be a final day where God will bring forth his righteous judgment and all that we have said, done, and thought will be brought into the light. I'm always struck by a statement like that because often we end up with this great crisis in the church. I like what my friend David Zoll wrote in his book, Law and Gospel. He says, here is the crisis in American Christianity. In large part, it is because people have been marketed Christianity as if it is a religion of good people getting better, when in fact it is a religion of bad people coping with their failure to be good. The idea that we can improve ourselves and attain our goals is not a harmless misconception, but instead lies near the root of much burnout, disillusionment, resentment, and religious recession. Is that if the church is unwilling to admit what we are in the dark, then we will never be able to experience the transformation and the freedom that the gospel is meant to produce in our lives, which is not sinless perfection, but hopeless dependence upon the one who is sinless. Thomas Cranmer, the great English thinker and part of the English Reformation, he was actually burned at the stake, He wrote this, he said, what the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. What the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. And I think about this is that that we have often begun to believe that we are not a mole bringing destruction in the dark, but that we are good people. When I asked my dad why he believed so many people that he knew should go to hell, he he had all his reasons, but when I asked him about himself, he said, of course not, I am a good person. And what scripture essentially declares and what Romans will begin to open up for us is that those that refuse the covering of Jesus, those who reject his grace must then accept that they will be judged for what they have done. That they will give an account to God if you demand justice and you demand that your behavior, your life be judged and that your performance has actually made you somehow worthy for eternity then that is the risk that you must take. But scripture warns us against that risk because Paul is very clear when he says in Romans chapter three, verse 20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather through the law we become conscious of our sin. So what we're gonna be digging into here is God's judgment. But what we must understand is that judgment for those that have been, that have come into a saving faith in Jesus, its purpose is refinement and reward. For us as believers, God's judgment upon our lives is meant to bring refinement to our character. 
Final judgment for the believer is refinement. God, who is a fire, a consuming fire, holy love, he will burn clean everything that is unlovely in the beloved. So for the believer, final judgment is nothing more than refinement and reward. But for those that reject God's grace and choose to place their own lives as the litmus test for why God should allow them in, God's judgment will be wrath and retribution. And it's not because he's functioning in less love, it's because they have rejected the only thing that would allow them to experience love as God intends them to experience it, which is the only one who actually is righteous and the only one who actually kept the law, which is Jesus himself. So the purpose of this text is not to give us the false idea that we can somehow live righteous lives in our own strength. Paul is going to show us something very profound and that is he accepts the idea that if someone was able to keep the law perfectly, they would be justified. But what he's gonna go on to say is that due to the problem of sin, the fact that we are fundamentally broken, that becomes an impossibility. And he says, therefore, by the law, I simply become aware of my sin. That's why I always said the law is like a plumb line from heaven. It doesn't, it doesn't correct the wall, it just shows us if it's crooked or not. So let's look at God's judgment. First of all, in verses five and six, we see that God's judgment is just. Remember last week, the last verse that we looked at last week was verse four of chapter two, and it says, it says that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. God's mercy, remember, I always said that his justice his love does not serve his justice. His justice serves his love. He does not love justly. He is just love or holy love. And here we're told, but because of the, your stubbornness and your unrepentant hearts, your rejection of God's mercy, your rejection of his grace, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when the righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Many things will be revealed or uncovered on that day. This is why Paul refers to it as God's, the day of God's wrath or it's the day of revelation. It's the day of God's righteous judgment. And this judgment will reveal all that is because it is according to the truth. And keep in mind, as Paul has been continuously pointing out that the problem uh, that we experience, the, the, the heart of the problem consider, continues to be the problem of the heart that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who suppress the what? The truth in unrighteousness. He goes on to say, therefore they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is to be glorified, to be exalted, to be lifted up. Because God's judgment is in accordance with truth. Therefore, it is impartial, it is immovable, because it is always right, and it is absolutely moral. It is the revealer 
of the things that are done in the dark. There will no longer be any hiding. Everything will come into the open and be exposed for what it is. This is the final judgment that scripture continually looks to and what Paul is warning against. He says, listen, here is the fact. If you think that your moral living and whether he's addressing the, the, the Jewish believers within the church or those that are informed by, by Greek philosophy like the Stoics who believe that there is law, laws written into the fabric of everything and that we have an innate understanding of what is right and wrong. And Paul will say, whether it's the law written upon the human conscience or it's the law written in in the holy scriptures it doesn't matter God's truth means that his judgment will be in accordance with the fact that he is the one who has given the law and he is the one who has able to judge perfectly whether that law has been kept or violated we can trust that he has all the facts And notice he says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant hearts, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. For God will repay each person according to what they have done. Hebrews chapter two, verse three, I think that this is an important verse for us to remember. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Salvation always has to do with faith. Judgment always has to do with works. Salvation always has to do with faith. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If we refuse to place our faith in the one who is righteous, Jesus, then we must accept the consequences, which is our judgment will be based upon our works rather than God's work on our behalf through his son. And this is what it says in verse six. God will repay each person according to what they have done, according to their works. It is especially important to remember that in this section, the main point is how individuals will be judged under law, not under grace. Thus, this is very important that we must not read this paragraph as including those who have put their trust in God's mercy or in the blood of Christ. What Paul says here applies only to those who are trusting in the law for their salvation. And it doesn't matter if it's the law that's written in the scriptures or the law written upon their hearts. If you are trusting in your own goodness to save you, then you will be judged according to your works. But if you are trusting in the one who alone is good, remember what the young rich ruler said to Jesus? Good teacher, how must one, how does one find salvation? How do I find eternal life? He says, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good and that is God. What was Jesus saying in that moment? Something very profound. He didn't deny that he was good. What he was essentially saying is, I am God and you're not good. (laughs) That's what he's saying. Why do you call me good? There is none who is good but God. And he's saying, I am God and you are not good. I am the answer. I am eternal life. That the goal of the Christian life is not our ability to keep some impossible law. The goal of the Christian life is intimacy with the one who created the law and kept it perfectly. Grace places us no longer under law, but fully under God's mercy. That Jesus in our place is both the judge 
and the judged so that God is justified in justifying the sinner. I like this because it doesn't mean that the believer will not have his works judged, but his works will not be considered in terms of eternal destination. His works will simply be refined and rewards will be given. Whatever the rewards are for us in heaven, I just am comfortable expecting to not get what the Apostle Paul got. But then again, the first shall be last, so I'm doing my best to be last that I might be first. No, I'm just joking. That would be called antinomian, and I'm not, I'm not saying let us sin that grace may abound, but I am saying what Mary Carr said when she was asked about her views on sanctification. She goes, well, before I met Jesus, I wanted everyone to die in the subway, and now I only want most people to die. It's a slow work. It's a slow work. <laughs> Here we see God's judgment is just, and that's the thing. If I was to be forced to entrust my eternal destiny upon my behavior, my works, what I am in the deep recesses of my mind, I am in deep trouble. You see, when we come into the light of the gospel, one of the first marks of, of God's saving work in our lives is not us being good people learning to be better. It's us actually having our hearts illuminated and seeing how desperately we need a savior in light of the facts that we cannot seem to escape our own brokenness. I am a saint only because I am a sinner. I am a saint because I am in Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the only thing you have to offer Jesus is your dead bodies and that's a good thing because he brings dead things to life. God's judgment is just and we can trust that it will be in accordance to his character and yes, we can even trust that scripture actually tips the scales toward mercy and that even the revealed judgment right now, the wrath that's being played out, is a wrath that is meant to actually lead people to a recognition of need. He gives them over in hopes that they would recognize that they cannot live without him and his mercy. God's judgment is just. God's judgment is also impartial. And what I mean by that is there are no favorites. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Notice what Paul is doing here. Paul agrees with the Jewish belief that justification in theory can be secured through works. He actually believes that if they could perfectly keep the law, they would be justified. But the problem is, is that Paul understands the nature of sin, which makes the ability in practice impossible. <laughs> in other words, yeah, it's feasible if someone was actually capable of keeping the law. But the fact is, is that sin has made us impotent in our ability to do what is right. That's why Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's none who is good. Isn't this what Psalm 14 declares? There is none who are righteous. 
What did David say? I have yet to see a righteous man forsaken. He writes that in the Psalms. You know why David wrote that? Because he had never seen a righteous man. Because the only righteous man who was forsaken was Jesus. And this is why Jesus on the cross of Calvary said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because his being forsaken means that you and I can be found. The righteous man, the one who actually said, I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, I came to fulfill them. He alone has done the good. He alone has kept the law and it is he alone who has received honor and immortality and he alone is the author of eternal life. And he said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the living God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So for us who place our faith in him, it is a positional thing. We have placed ourselves in the one who is righteous in the one who has kept the law. Therefore, it is not the the destruction of the law, but in Christ, the law has been fulfilled and we live under a new law, the law of freedom, the law of grace. God's justification of sinners without violating his justice. This is the work that works. In John chapter six, verse 29, when they said, what must we do to do the work of God? And he said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's why I think it's important, Gary Brashears and I met this last week, and I think it's an important aspect of faith that we don't think through very often, which is that faith, yes, is a disposition of trust toward Christ that gives Christ the right to be Christ in and through our lives. But we also must remember that faith is, is exercised, is represented in Jesus' own words, pick up your cross and follow me, which means that Jesus is actually going somewhere. It means that our faith in him is not just a disposition of trust, but it's also an allegiance to him. He is now the king. We say, our kingdom go, your kingdom come. Our faith in him is not the belief that he exists, but that he is the one who exists for us and is working in us and through us. God's judgment is impartial. He shows no favoritism. His ability to justify sinners is because we have put our faith in the one who alone is justified in his works, and that is Christ. And the ultimate work of Jesus Christ is the work of the cross. It is the only work that actually saves. Because God is truth, his judgment is absolutely just. It is right that the writers of scripture remind us again and again that God has no favorites. I love that the cross puts all people on an even playing field. We are all desperately lost without Christ. I told my dad, I'm like, dad, don't trust in your goodness. I'm happy to tell you, you're not that good. And I'm happy to tell you that because I love you and because Jesus is that good. And he looks at me and he goes, yeah, I don't know about that, son. I'm like, no, I'm serious. You're not that good. You weren't, you weren't, you weren't good. He's like, I've, I've done so much for people. I'm like, yeah, what about me? He's like, Joshua, you're supposed to be here to make me feel better, not worse. 
and such is the reality of the truth that comes into our lives, it is difficult for us. Why do people reject the gospel? The reason that people reject the gospel and actually would love and are willing to take the risk that their behavior and lives actually qualify them for eternal life. The reason that people will cast their trust onto such a faulty ground is because it is so violating to have the darkness of our hearts exposed for what they are. This is why the church can't be a place where good people get better. It has to be a place where broken, sinful people find grace. It's the only thing that actually makes us better. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is not guilt and shame. It does not do the work that is necessary for transformation. It is the casting of ourselves upon the one who alone can make us right. You know, I, I've been struck by these passages here because God's judgment being universal is the, the next reality that we have. He says, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. He says, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And he says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required to the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences, and also bearing, also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and other times even defending them. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew who has been given the holy scriptures and can see the law, or you're, the, or you're a pagan who has the law of the universe written upon your heart, the fact is, is that all people remain guilty. You either perish apart from the law or perish under the law, but apart from grace, there is something deeply problematic. This is why it is only for those who put their faith in Christ that the judgment that will come in the last day will be something that actually brings benefit to the believer rather than a removal of, from God's very presence. I've, I've always been struck by 1 Corinthians chapter three. And this shows us that, <laughs> that even for the believer, it's best not to actually trust in your works even as a believer. Because if you're like me, I read 1 Corinthians 3 verses 13 through 15, listen to this. Each one's work will become clear. See, salvation always deals with faith. Judgment always deals with works. He says, here, this is the believer. Each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he is built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. I have always wondered how many Christians will smell like smoke in eternity. Like, notice the, the, the state, the eternal state, their salvation based solely upon the finished work of Jesus, but we are saved 
unto good works that the Father has prepared for us that Christ wants to do through us. But see, here's the thing, is it's works that God has prepared and it's also works that God has empowered as we cast ourselves in dependence upon his grace. This is why Luther says, God doesn't need your works, but your neighbor does. It's not, we're not earning anything. We're not proving our worth anymore. We are now walking in the freedom of the assurance that I have been covered by the blood of the lamb. And now as I surrender to him, I can begin to step out in faith and begin to actually live a life that is different. And this is where I always talk about the gospel of grace is this, is grace is a gift. A gift must be received freely. It's given freely, it must be received freely. But that's not the only definition of gift, even in, in our English language. Another definition of gift is, is a talent that one is born with. And you think about this, a runner who has the gift of running, they, it, they, they, that means that there is something in their DNA that allows them to run faster than normal people. But they don't discover their ability to run fast unless they, what, exercise that gift. And I believe that the gift of salvation comes to us freely. We receive it, but we become born again. And to be born again means that we have been given a new gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit actually gifts us. But those gifts, that gift of salvation, as Paul writes in Philippians, needs to be worked out. D.L. Moody said it best. Our salvation is like a gold mine. We must learn to work it out. And I think, or dig it out. <laughs> And I think that this is the power of, of, God's, of God's righteous work in and through our lives, that we are not saved by works, we are saved by faith, but it is a faith that works as we cast ourselves in dependence upon him. I'm, not lo I'm no longer concerned about whether I am proving my worth to Jesus. I trust that Jesus is worthy and I am in him. And as I am in him, as I come into the light, daily recognizing that I am a sinner, the humility that that produces causes me to cast myself in dependence upon him that he now is able to work through me. This is why Paul says, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. The first fruit of grace is humility, not a lessening of sin so much as a deeper awareness of sin's continuing presence, which is why I must trust in Jesus and him alone. God's judgment is universal. It can't be escaped, but in Christ, it has been dealt with once and for all. Now, the only judgment that comes is a judgment of refinement and reward for those that have put their trust in Jesus. And this is why Paul says here at the close, God's judgment is through Jesus. He says, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. The final test of character and conduct is defined by our attitude toward Christ. For those who place their faith in Christ, refinement and reward. For those that refuse him, retribution and wrath. Remember what I said, hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the absolute presence of God apart from the covering of the sun. Hell is the presence of God without the possibility of relationship with him. Jesus said that many will come to me in the last day and they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that in your name? We cast out demons in your name. We did signs and wonders in your name. We studied the Bible in your name. We memorized the scriptures. We served the poor. We did all these things. And he will say, away from me, I never knew you. 
Because the essence of eternal life is, an, is intimate knowledge of the living Christ who has called us into relationship with him. And that relationship is based upon our trusting what he has done for us. But the problem in the church is too often we're still trying to prove to him that we are worthy of our salvation. And you can't add to the work of Christ nor can you take away from it. That's why we don't front load the gospel at Door of Hope and hopefully we don't back load it either. Because too often the church says this, come sinners, Jesus will meet you in your sin. Quit trying to prove your worth. Just say yes to Jesus and then we get you in the church and then we give you a whole new ladder to climb that's even more exhausting than the ladder you were on out there. And that's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about a transformation of relationship a right relationship with God, which leads to a right relationship with others, and then and only then can it lead to a right relationship with ourselves. I like what Malachi says about the final judgment. It says, surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace, all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty, not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the same fire, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. God will either be a consuming fire that devours or he will be a consuming fire that refines. And the question is, is are you willing to trust in your goodness to make you right with God? Because Paul is quite clear that no flesh will be justified by the law. The law just reveals that we are law sinners in need of a savior. For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret but that it should come into light. Everything shall be tested by fire. And this is why Jesus said in John chapter 12, verses 31 through 32, now is the time for judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You guys, here's the good news about God's judgment. Is that through the cross of Calvary, God has taken his own judgment into himself. And so of course, what could we be left with if we reject the only hope if we reject God's willingness to stand in the gap and say, I take the punishment that Josh deserves into myself. If I was to say, Lord, I don't want it. I believe I'm good enough. Then I must rest and trust and hope that I really am good enough to prove that I am worthy to be a conduit of God's blessing. But that is a fool's errand. For God says this, the condemnation is the same. For God pokes his head out of heaven to see if there is one man, one woman who is not an idiot and he comes up with a string of zeros. And that's why you and I as zeros must cast ourselves upon the goodness and the mercy of Jesus because he says, I have taken the judgment. I have taken it into myself. And when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. The invitation of Jesus is not work hard that you might be saved. 
He says, trust in me. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Our faith should be a faith that works, but that faith that works is a faith that continually casts ourselves at the feet of the one who has taken the judgment into himself so that we can be conduits daily of his grace. Only grace can do what the law cannot. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you for its ability and power to bring transformation to our lives. And we ask right now that by your Holy Spirit, you would convict us where we are trying to prove our worth, that you would show us where we are exhausting ourselves in our own futile efforts to prove our lovability. Lord, where we are rejecting your grace, where we have turned your gospel into a work of the flesh. Paul, I think of Paul's words, Lord. You foolish Galatians, why are you trying to perfect in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit? Lord Jesus, forgive us for the ways that we try to prove ourselves to you. Lord, we recognize that there is only one law that can save and it's the law of grace. And thank you that you, Jesus, have taken the judgment into yourselves, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is why we have been given this gospel, not to keep to ourselves, but that we might become your witnesses to the ends of the world, to declare to the world, for God has so loved this world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so Lord, we trust in you, and we declare that you are Lord. We trust that your justice serves your love, and this is why you are holy love. We turn to you, our King. Thank you for your mercies. They are truly new every day. It's in your name we pray, amen. Hey friends, this is Josh from Door of Hope. We're in a period of expanding our efforts as a church to reach our city with the gospel, which includes having moved into our new building as well as pursuing church planting. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and we never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help us as we seek to expand our ministry in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your support and prayer. To donate financially to Door of Hope, just head to doorofhopepdx.org and select Generosity and Give Online. Thanks again for listening.